what people don't appreciate, the profound degree of leverage which exists within the system and which effectively it's a volatility machine because there are times when that degree of leverage has to be unwound and of course that creates a crisis in liquidity. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a new heart. Welcome to the latest installment of the Asset Capitalist Show. And again, tease, I don't know, we have Scott Scarf. Scott has written several books. Initially, his focus, his attention was on rogue traders, people losing money, uh, the people we don't like. The rules of hedge funds are do everything, amuse me, entertain me, just don't lose money. And Scott has written up on several sad, scandalous sagas. But he's here today because Scott runs a repo desk. Scott does security financing. And we want to delve deeper and try and give you folk. What am I saying, you folk? I want to get a better understanding of it. And again, as we begin, and I have the hat, forgive me, I was presenting in the City of London last night, and I was walking down Portobello Road, and I decided that I would buy myself a top hat. I think I will take it off. But again, the rules of engagement, This the asset capitalism is a campaign, a campaign to change the financial world for the better, to kind of stand up for the 99%. We live in a world where we have mercantilist sovereign nations who have this profound surplus of manufacturing capacity, which leads to the disinflation in the earnings of the real folk. And all the offer and return is to buy dollar financial assets. And indeed, today I'm thinking about the UK and, and British sterling financial assets and create this grotesque Gini coefficient where the real people can't afford anything. So I need money for this. And so we're giving you 30 minutes. We give you a lot more if you're a Patreon supporter. We'd love you to come on board. We'd love you to be part of that campaign. I'll say a few words in about 29 minutes and I'll wave goodbye to the folks in the cheap seats. But without further ado, I'm going to take this silly hat off and I'm going to welcome Scott to the show. Scott, what can you tell us? Thank you for the warm welcome. I, I work for a broker dealer named Curvature Securities that specializes in securities finance. And securities financing in a very... Simple terms is borrowing and lending securities. So you can really borrow and lend any type of security. You can borrow or loan even. We specialize in U.S. Treasury securities and stocks, but you can borrow and lend U.K. gilts. You can borrow and lend German boons or French oats or Italian BTPs. We happen to run a very large book of business in U.S. Treasuries where we borrow treasuries from some participants in the market and we lend them to others. So that's the basis for a repo business. It's, it's collateralized lending. My company, Curvature Securities, we're, we've been in the business for six or seven years, relatively new. Our principals saw a great opening in the market where it looked like banks were pulling back from the securities financing business several years ago. And our principals set up a broker-dealer to specialize in, in, in this business. I came on board about five, a little over five years ago and set up my business here. I came in, sat down, brought in my customers, hired a few traders, 
And we have a very active business borrowing and lending U.S. Treasury securities. Okay, what do you need to enter the business? How does one start a business like this? So it's very institutional. So we don't have any individual clients. It's most of our clients are money market funds, broker dealers, banks, hedge funds, very large hedge funds. I I get that. I get that. But to set up the bit, so you are stepping into the vacated shoes of very large financial entities. I'd imagine that the cost of admission into that game would be rather daunting. It seems that you're suggesting it's not. So it it depends on how big your pockets are, which is depending on whether it's a large commitment or not. In order to be a dealer in this business and to be a market maker, you have to be a member of our central clearing counterparty or almost the equivalent of an exchange. If you wanted to provide futures, the financial futures execution for customers, you've got to be a member of the CME, you know, or the LME in in London. In the United States, Fixed Income Clearing Corp is the basis for anybody who's going to be a dealer or market maker in U.S. Treasury securities or in the repo markets. So basically, you need enough capital. You need to be a broker dealer or a bank and join the equivalent of our exchange. Clearly, it's a question of being a well-capitalized counterparty. Could you define that further, please? So let's say Fixed Income Clearing Corp, our exchange our central clearing counterparty, it requires a minimum of $25 million to become a member. And that's somewhat junior member status at this point. But most of the members of FIC are large banks with billions of dollars of capital. However, there are some entities, some smaller entities that are broker dealers that have anywhere from, let's say, 100 million to 500 million in capital. It's an institutional business. And it's well capitalized. And I think one of the reasons why you have to be somewhat well capitalized is because we're dealing in very large transaction sizes. You have to have enough capital to to support a large book of business that's large in terms of the notional assets. But in terms of the risk, it is not a lot of risk. Okay. So in terms of coverture securities, what's the capital you have? So our business at Curvature, our Book of business probably ranges anywhere from 15 billion in assets to 50, 50 billion in assets. Now, we don't really own those securities. We, we borrow securities, and which is the repo transaction. So typically we might. But are you doing that with, sorry, are you doing that? What do you capitalize that? Are you capitalized at the minimum? Have you got 25 million of equity or are you more? We have, and this is public knowledge, we have almost $100 million in capital. $100 million a couple. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you. And then, uh, and so there you go. That's your day job. And we're going to dive deep into that. But uh, you're about to publish, release a book on the repo market, the subtext being shortages and squeezes. Uh, can you maybe just say something about the genesis of that? What encourages, what the motivation for that book is? Sure. The, the idea of the book started 25 years ago, at least. And back then in the late 1990s, I always wanted to write a book. And that was going to be the big book I wrote at the end of my career. And life gets in the way. You get married, you have kids, you change jobs, you work hard, and things keep getting pushed back. But one of the most important things about this book that I just put out on the repo market is that there's not really many good sources of information on the repo market. There have been some books that have been written 
One was in the late 1980s, which is completely out of date. There's a couple books written by a professor that has a lot of formulas. My, my book is really the inside story of the repo market of somebody who lived through it for the past 30 plus years. And it includes events that occurred in the market, in the financial markets. There's stories, there's history, there's, there's events that have occurred and why did those events occur? And so it really traces the, the repo market from 30 years ago in the early 1990s, where you had a lot of broker dealers that were treasury dealers up until now, where you have gi giant banks that dominate the market. Okay. And then just last thing before we, we dive deep, why are large banks vacating the space and allowing people like Coverture Securities to take their place? What are they seeing and not liking? That you have That's the a good question. Of it's called regulation. <laughs> Dodd-Frank yeah. and Basel III. And Dodd-Frank passed in 2012, and they have things called leverage ratios. And also the SLR, Special Leverage Ratio, for the largest SIFI banks. And Basel III, which is global banking regulation. Basel III is the U.S. banks have to follow Basel III, where they didn't have to file, follow Basel II. And Basel III also has leverage ratios and regulatory capital. Okay, so speak to me about those leverage ratios. What's prohibitive about those leverage ratios? Because again, they are supremely well capitalized and as wonderful as coverture, I'm sure, is simply just a, a speck of sand. So when you get to the leverage ratios, figure, look at it as something that limits the playing field of a bank. So if you're a bank, you have a certain amount of capital and you can have a certain amount of assets. And the general idea of why regulators put the leverage ratios in the new financial regulation from about 10 years ago was that they wanted an absolute limit as to how large the banks could be in relative to their capital. And of course, we're thinking back that's post 2008, there was a financial crisis and people wanted to limit the size of banks and there was a big push. Now, when you're a bank, you have, let's say you have a repo business in your bank and in your repo business, it's, it's very low risk, but repo transactions generate assets on your balance sheet and you make very little amounts of spread on your repo transactions, it, you're not risking a lot to make that small spread. So basically in the repo market, you have very large transactions to make very small spreads. And so when you have banks that have limited leverage, one of the first businesses to go are gonna be the low spread businesses. You know, how banks evolved over the past, let's say 10 years, was as Dodd-Frank and Basel III started filtering into the market, they didn't come in all at once, they were eased in the market, the banks started retreating from the securities financing space. And that opened up room for smaller players like ourselves and several other broker-dealers to go into this space. Okay, so am I right in thinking that you can carry notional of 50 billion with a hundred million of equity. So effectively you've got an equity ratio of 0.2% to your notional. So it depends on how you look at assets. So 
if you had... No, I've, played that game. I've played that game. I did have a macro hedge fund and de- determining the value of an asset, duration adjusted, a three-month security and trying to make a turn, turn, trying to make a return on your capital with a three-month security requires a hell of a large number of zeros on the balance sheet to get that return. Um, and it's opaque with regard to how one defines assets. So there's different types of assets. So one asset could be 50 billion 30-year bonds, which can wipe you out in one day. Another type of asset can be 50 billion one-year treasury bills, which that's, that, that is a much safer asset and the price volatility is much less. Now, of course, what we do is we don't own any securities. We're borrowing securities from one entity and lending them to another. So if I borrowed a billion dollars worth of treasury securities from a hedge fund and loan them to a money market fund, making a very small spread in between, we don't really own those securities. We have a risk of, we've got a risk of our counterparty failing. And if the counterparty fails, it's a collateralized loan and we can sell off the underlying collateral. So in terms of that's a big different type of asset than a billion 30-year bonds or a billion CDOs or high-yield bonds. Sure. But I've got a lot of smart people who watch the show and we've just gone through the last six weeks of the debt ceiling and we saw quite remarkable quite remarkable price variation in the shortest tenor U.S. securities. And with those ratios, heavens above. Yeah, you know, there it, is a chapter on the debt ceiling in my new book, The Repo Market mm-hmm. Short Shortages and Squeezes, because that's an important part of the treasury market. And there have been debt ceiling panics or crises in the past, 2011, 2013, most recently, 2023. And it's an issue that come up in the financial markets that now that you're familiar with it, knowing that, and we got to the point, the largest spreads I saw was at two-week treasury bills. I believe it was the June 15 treasury bill was trading 100 basis points. That's 1% above where overnight rates were trading. And how do you get distorted markets like that? There, there's a reason for the distortion in terms of the, the debt ceiling issue is that if there is, if the U.S. can no longer issue debt to pay its bills and pay for maturing securities, then there's a risk that the securities that are about to mature in the market, I think there were June 5 bills, June something bills, there is a risk that those securities would not be paid for at maturity by the U.S. Treasury. And that's how the market priced the rates and priced those securities based on, okay, if you were to miss a few days worth of interest on your cash, you know, what is that worth? What is that? And there's a break even for figuring that out. Although the rates traded much above the break evens because there was an illiquidity factor also. Yeah, but there were days when the shortest duration Treasury securities were gapping at the open with with percentage changes, which were four standard deviations beyond the mean. Let's discuss repo. I know what it is. You know what it is. A lot of people don't know what it is. I've been playing with the notion of thinking of it as a pawn shop, yeah, a grand pawn shop. And rather than going in 
an offering. Typically, you'd go in and you'd offer this kind of cheap watch. And you'd say, hey, how many dollar bills will you give me for this? And the guy would look at it and you're like, Jesus, Henry, you are cheap. I'll give you 200 bucks. Okay. But that loan is good for 24 hours and you better be available in 24 hours time. And you know what? I might change my mind. I might require a different collateral, another watch, another piece of furniture. I might require your left arm. Yeah. Uh, I would look at that analogy a little bit differently from the- Please do. From the view of the uh, of the repo markets. So you've got your watch is worth, let's say, $200. And let's say I'm running the, the watch repo shop. You come into that and I know it's worth $200 and because I know I can sell it at that. There's a market, there, there's a mechanism. I can sell it on eBay. I can yeah. sell it to a watch shop down the street. So I know it's worth $200. And basically you need to loan me that watch let's say for a week. So I'm going to take margin on that because the price of that watch could change over the next week. So I'm going to say, I'm going to give you $175 for that $200 watch. And I'm going to charge you a rate of 7%, something like that. So, you know, you're paying interest on your loan. I'm also taking a haircut on the value in case of the value of your watch drops over the next week. And that, that's are, we, are you discussing, are you actually discussing the pawn shop? Because the numbers you're quoting doesn't sound like securities lending. Um, it's actually the same principle. So for example, if. But those numbers are way off. You would be in business with those numbers. Oh, well, no, the, the, those, those are the numbers for a watch. Those are the watch numbers, not the U.S. Treasury bill number. I'm glad I clarified that. Those are the financing numbers for the watch, for the pawn shop. Exactly, for a watch. Now, those are numbers in the repo market sometimes. It depends on what you're in. There has been times in the past where I've come across securities and have looked to finance them and somebody wanted a 50% haircut on those securities or a 25% haircut. You go into real funky. So, and forgive me again, forgive me, Scott, but so that, so the haircut means that you offer as collateral, let's say a hundred million dollars of listed securities. And the counterparty looks at the list and says, heavens, actually, I could only extend, when you say a 50% haircut, you say, I could only extend you credit of $50 million against your $100 million portfolio, correct? Yes. For Now, these are illiquid, that's for illiquid, hard-to-price, sure. low-rated securities. But, but I or, perhaps in moments, or perhaps moments of great distress in financial markets where you don't necessarily wish to take on the credit risk. Exactly, exactly. Now, with the U.S. Treasury in the repo market, we might charge one quarter of 1% or one half of 1%. So in other words, somebody who has 100 million U.S. Treasuries, we might take haircut or margin, and they want to lend us $100 million worth of securities. We'll give them... $99,500. We'll take a little padding in terms of in case the price of those securities moves. Yeah. Now I hear for the largest clients, because you're a small operator, but at the the upper echelons, there's no haircut. 
is client relationship and you want the business with the $10 billion hedge fund and there's no haircut, unless it's a preposterous form of collateral, which is on offer. Yeah. So yes, that is true in some circumstances. And that is an issue in the repo market right now. And I know regulators are very interested in that because they've asked me about that. That, and so here's a little bit of history behind that is that back in 2021, 2020, 2022, when interest rates were at 0%, the repo market, there was a very small playing field when rates are very low. And a lot of the banks were trying to protect their profit margins. So a lot of the large banks started moving in their haircuts or eliminating their haircuts or margin on repo transactions and treasuries because they wanted to be more competitive. And they figured a lot of these banks said, I need to keep making the same amount of money. What can I give up? So they started giving up their margin or their security on the transaction, which long term is a mistake. But they they were taking more risk, seeking a high return by taking more risk. It was really keeping their existing returns by taking more risk. So what happened was when rates turned around and the Fed started raising rates a little bit over a year ago, uh, a lot of those deals were in place where a lot of the big banks still had deals with the big hedge fund clients to take no haircuts or no margin on the transactions. Now, of course, if you look at the really big hedge funds, if you had a large hedge fund that was transacting in investment grade, U.S. Treasury collateral, but there, there's probably not a lot of credit risk with that large hedge fund. But there, there have been hedge funds in the last couple of years that are trading stocks and derivatives on stocks and globally. And we just had one go bust a few years ago. Bill Wang. Yeah. So yes, that is a current issue in the repo market is the fact that a lot of the hedge, the largest hedge funds don't pay any haircuts or margin, but there are other ways where some of them are paying haircuts and margins. So one of them might be if they're at their prime broker and they're doing treasury transactions, their prime broker might not be taking margin or haircuts on their treasury positions, but they're taking it on their futures positions or their equity positions. So a lot of times the big prime brokers are still taking margin. It just might not be on the treasury area of the market. Yeah, it's, they're looking at it as the, the sum of total business from commit, from the spread, the, the bid ask to capital raising and all of the rest of it. But th- that, again, that's quite quite a hard business for you because you're up against these gigantic institutions they could look at your business as a loss leader for them to actually generate a return elsewhere in their empire. A lot of the people watching this will be saying, why do hedge funds and other institutions have to have to come to you? Why do they have to borrow? They think of a billion dollar, and I know the answer to this, but they think of a billion dollar hedge fund and they think, wow, like, why do they need it anymore? So what is the purpose of repo, if you will, in terms of the purpose that, and utility that you serve? And before you go into your wonderful explanation, I am going to seek my heart out again because the time is getting very close. People, that the I'm in London, I'm in the basement somewhere. The sun is descending; it's becoming dark. The time's ticking on. Repo is all about the repo market. It's all about the non-sovereign dollar creation where you can present collateral to a counterparty and they print money. And the central banks are not really interested. And we've got Scott, who does it for a living, 
He's written three books and he's now read in the repo market shortages and squeezes and he's got lots of tales to tell. $20 a month. How much do you spend on a coffee? You get the whole back catalogue. That's the minimum. And the guys who write those boring things on YouTube, really? I moved to London, heavens, about 25, 30 years ago. And a wise person said to me, I got to tell you something. The beer's really expensive in London versus in Glasgow. But it is really corny and it's really boring to be the person that complains about the price. Just move on. Anyway, people, we love you. Come back again and I'll give you more insults and we'll give you maybe 15, 20 minutes of entertainment. But bye-bye.